a copy of the Word of God, turn to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter three. We are in the morning worship, going through the book of Hebrews. We have finished off chapter three, so I'm going to leave it there for a number of weeks. And those who have been here for long enough will know that over recent years we have looked at texts from Handel's Messiah in December. We will pick that up as we move into December, so we'll leave Hebrews until the new year. So with a, a Lord's Day in which it wasn't appropriate to deal with Hebrews or to, or I could have, could have gone into chapter 4, but I didn't want to do that and not begin our series in Messiah, I wondered what to preach. Last Lord's Day, someone made the suggestion that it might be helpful for me to deal with certain relevant subjects on occasion, and I I try not to make a habit of that, to be a kind of hobby horse preacher going from one kind of pressing subject on my mind to another and kind of battering you with all sorts of things that are relevant, maybe it feel relevant in a given season, but to, but to simply preach the Word, put Christ before you, is the meat and potatoes of Christian ministry. But I'm going to take this morning, and, and I, I, have a funny, I have a fear that it's going to push into the evening. We'll see how it goes. But I want to deal with what I've titled this morning as the cult of woke the cult of woke, and look at this with you with the Lord's help. So we're in Second Peter chapter 3, going to read the last two verses of that chapter, the end of the epistle. Just read these verses, pray, and then I will be a little more note-tied than usual, so forgive me for that, but it's, it's more of a subject, and I want to kind of get across what is before me here. So let us read the Word of God. To begin, Second Peter 3, verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen and Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this world in which we live is violent. It is a battleground, and the Christian experience is one of warfare. Thy word makes us plain, and we are to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And though we are aware of this, And the Word of God frequently reminds us of the battle that we are in this side of eternity. Yet we can easily be forgetful or we can not discern the enemy as we ought. The dangers that loom and how the enemy seeks to destroy that which is good. So we pray, equip us, make us soldiers indeed well able to discern, to fight, and to stand against the enemy in our day. And as we look at this subject, 
I pray that it would be not just a, a paper delivered or a subject looked at, but edifying and helpful both today and in the days to come. So forgive our sins. Give to me the Holy Spirit. Lead me, Lord. And should something be left out, let it be so. Should something be added, grant us thy wisdom. And come to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2016, a research paper was published titled, this is peer-reviewed paper, Glaciers, Gender, and Science, a Feminist Glaciology Framework for Global Environmental Change Research. Now, reading the title, immediately you should be thinking, what on earth has feminism got to do with the study of glaciers? And the paper seeks to determine that if we consider gender in our analysis of glaciers, it will result in improved justice and equity in human ice interactions. That sounds rather bizarre, but this kind of thinking is highly refined. This is passing not among fools, not among throwaway videos on social media, but in academia, in places of learning where people are meant to deal with real issues and address them thoughtfully. It is rooted in something called critical theory. Now, critical theory is not easy to define, but loosely we might say that a critical theory, listen, is any approach to social philosophy that focuses on society and culture to reveal, critique, and challenge power structures. Critical theory argues that social problems stem more from social structures and cultural assumptions than from individuals themselves. Critical theory forms the foundation for other philosophical approaches such as cultural studies, feminism, postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. So if you enter into any of those areas, inevitably, inevitably you'll be dealing with a structure or framework that falls into the critical theory understanding of things. Historically, critical theory has been distinguished from traditional theory. With critical theory, the purpose is to critique and change society as a whole, whereas traditional theory is laid out as more about understanding and explaining society. So that's what it sees as, as a problem and counters against. The root of the ideas are found in the 18th century and the early 19th century, developed over that time, but it has evolved so that it governs not just how we understand Karl Marx and his view of economics, but ethnicity, gender, and beyond. It has now spread into so many areas that an attempt to catalog it under a heading, uh, it has been referred to by some who, let's say, aren't really for it. They call really a way of grouping all of these things together is to call it grievance studies. Because really that's what it's about. It's about what do you have a grief with? What do you have a problem with? And then it's pulled in and seen as a critical theory, something that has to be opposed and changed. This brings us to woke ideology. Now, I use the word woke, and not that long ago someone asked me, what is woke? What, what, what does it mean to be woke? And I think a good number of months ago I made reference to a, a, a Twitter account that is called Woke Preacher Clips, 
And I mention it again because that's what that account does is basically catalog and discover and expose what's going on in the churches of America and how this ideology is coming from the pulpit and has bedded into the thinking of the seminaries, the churches, and into the people that sit under such ministries. And it is pervasive. It is everywhere. This account has no shortage of material. And it goes on almost daily, references to this stuff, if we can call it that. I will be using the word woke to describe the contemporary expression of critical theory. The term woke originated when black activists warned one another to quote-unquote stay woke, meaning you need to be alert to the reality of racism. Waken up to the reality of racism. But in recent times it has expanded to mean that you are now alert or aware of all sorts of perceived bigotry and discrimination. It's gone beyond the matter of race to any area perceived as being something where there is discrimination, or more to the point, as we'll see in just a moment, where there is oppression. So I'm looking at this morning what I've titled, I've told you already, The Cult of Woke. The Cult of Woke. And I want to look at three main headings with you. First of all, relevance. Relevance. When we look at this subject, you ask yourself, what's the relevance? And what justifies me dealing with this subject this morning? So my first subheading then, dealing with relevance, is the relevance of false ideas. The relevance of false ideas, or the relevance of dealing with false ideas. Now I have turned you here to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter deals with, basically in large, the, the reality of false teachers. The fact that false teachers are a constant and pressing threat. Even in the first century, in the presence of the apostles, with their large personalities and the authority of God upon their ministries, men still rose up to distort and to uh, misguide those that were in the church. We're not dealing with people that are outside and we can identify them clearly and think they're not a threat. They believe an entirely different thing. They're not part of our religion and you know to walk away. This is deceptive. It's deceptive. Jude deals with the same subject. There's a lot of overlap between 2 Peter and Jude. Jude's dealing with the same thing. He talks about certain men that have crept in unawares. These people come in. And so dealing with false ideas is not the whole of the ministry, but it is part of it. So in 2 Peter 3, at the end of it, as he has addressed the fact there are false teachers he says in verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before. In other words, you've been warned of these false teachers. You've been warned that falsehood is a reality. You've been warned to stay away from those that distort the Word of God. Beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But, and this is the encouragement, I, I need to state this before we kind of proceed. The real answer, the, the, the number one answer to help a people stay away from what is erroneous and destructive to the soul is, is a positive message. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
There are some well-meaning people that think the pulpit needs to be more, let's say, topical. And it needs to dress week after week, constant, this issue, that issue, the other issue. It needs to move away from kind of just dealing with the doctrine of justification, sanctification, and areas of, of that nature, and move into economics, move into areas of, again, social justices and areas of social justice or whatever. It, they want you to get more into those things. Now, there's a place for it. And I have addressed certain subjects at various times, COVID and all the rest. There's a time, there's a place to recognize there's a threat or there's clarity that needs to be given on an issue. But getting up every week and dealing with the issues, and there are some pulpits that have actually established themselves and they draw people because they're constantly dealing with some thematic issue that is relevant in the public discourse of the current time, whether it be political or something else. Now, I, I think many of these, they profess faith in Christ, they know the Lord, but I, I think this passage gives clarity that, that the way to help, what, what's the danger? Being led away with the air of the, the wicked, falling away from your own steadfastness. How do you prevent that? Growing in grace. Growing in your understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Having someone help you look at him in the beauties of his three offices as prophet, priest, and king of the people of God. Seeing that permeate almost every line of Scripture and addressing then the duty of the Christian life based on the objective, unchangeable truths about our Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is how we grow. But there is a place for warning. That's what Peter does. He warns. He warns. He finishes this way. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep looking to Christ. But he has warned. And so there is a place for warning. Turn for a moment to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. The book of Deuteronomy gives to us Moses' words to the children of Israel just before they go into the promised land. He's about to die. In some ways, this is his last sermon. And in it, of course, he, he rehearses what God has done for them. And he gives again a second giving of the, of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. And from there, he begins to, as, as some have noted, they, they have noted that really what he is doing from chapter 5 and the giving of the Ten Commandments, as he fleshes out the Ten Commandments. He fleshes it out. And so, they have suggested chapter 6 through 11 is a fleshing out of the First Commandment. Chapter 12 is a fleshing out of the Second Commandment. Chapter 13, when you come into there, it begins dealing with the Third Commandment, where we are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Now, when you think about taking the Lord's name in vain, Often the initial thing you think about is that I, I, I don't say God or Jesus Christ in a place or in a time where really is not relevant or pertinent, where I'm using it uh, in a way that I ought not, misuse of His name. Certainly, one way we break the commandment. But another way in which we break the third commandment is by laying, like stating this is what God's will is when it's not. 
saying that this is, this is what the Lord said to me when he never said that, or some other f- expression of that. And so in Deuteronomy 13, the third commandment that gets broken here, or at least the warning of it being broken, is in a number of ways. Verses 1 through 5 is a test of your loyalty to God being, well, let's put it this way, your loyalty to God being tested by a false prophet. So it says, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, now what do you begin to think? You think, here's someone with divine credibility. It comes to pass. There's some authority upon their life, and you begin to give them an ear. And then they begin to speak. And what do they say? Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known. Let us serve them. Thou shalt not heart. Don't. It doesn't matter what they are perceived to have accomplished. It doesn't matter what sign they appear to have done, whether they made a leg longer so that it matches the length of the other leg or say something about the future that comes to pass. But if they're saying things and calling you to things that are against the explicit revealed will of God and His Word, you walk away. You're to listen to God, verse 4, obey His voice, and so on. So your loyalty to God is tested by the false prophet. Your loyalty to God is tested by a family member. Verse 6, if thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy father. Now you can see the scene here. One, the impression is made because they've, they've done a sign, something, or they've predicted the future in some way, and you're impressed by that, and so you listen. In this case, you listen because there is an established relationship There's an affinity, an affection, a bias, a love. Now, this is particularly pertinent to the subject we're looking at this morning. Because many in the church have come to adopt a view of acceptance of homosexuality, transgenderism, faulty views of divorce, whatever it might be, things that a hundred years ago in the church you would not find a person, you would struggle to find a person that would agree. It's now easy to find people like that, in large part, not because of the false preachers simply getting up and saying, this is how to believe, but by you knowing someone who has gone through it. So your brother, your sister, some other family member, someone you appreciate, comes to you, you've grown up with them, you spent 20 years growing up with them, you love them, you've went on vacations together, you have all sorts of shared memories, and then they come and say, I'm homosexual. You feel, you feel a compassion in that relationship that calls you immediately to a decision as to whether you're going to hold on to the view you previously had regarding homosexuality or whether it's going to morph and change based on your friend, your brother, your whatever now holding to this. That is 
perhaps the most effective, insidious way in which the church has been changed with regard to this. People you know and you love coming to you and saying, they now hold this, or I'm getting a divorce. And they paint this picture and it seems so awful, but deep down you know this isn't really grounds for divorce. You know it. You know it. But you begin to change because you have an affection. Then you have verses 12 and following, your loyalty to God tested by communities. So if thou shalt hear say in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men of the children of Belial are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which ye have not known, and thou shalt inquire, and so on. I'm not going to read it all. But basically, communities are being moved away. And in one sense, you can see this with regard to church communities. There's a pressure in this church to change, not based upon any internal desire, at least I'm aware of, you're not coming to me, at least you haven't yet, and said we need to change in these areas. But there is an external pressure. There are people that visit sometimes and you get a sense that they're in a different place. And if you want to attract and draw more people in, there's a sense of, well, well, now this has been normalized in the church. These views, these different ideas, normalized in the church. Don't be one of those weird, you know, out to left field, strange churches you have to come in. You have to pull in. And this can be a pressure. It's a societal pressure, a community pressure. Adjust, change, adapt, be like the others. And God says, don't. You're not permitted to do this. So the relevance then of false ideas is, it, there is a relevance to dealing with false ideas. It's right here in Deuteronomy 13. It's a test of your allegiance to God and your upholding of the third commandment. God takes false teaching very seriously. And so if an individual, family member, whole community try to misrepresent God and mislead people, you're not permitted to go down that path. As I've said already, Second Peter and Jude are the two books in the New Testament that address this subject in more detail. It builds out the New Testament view of Deuteronomy 13. We are not permitted to follow trends because someone with apparent divine credibility told us so or because of some family member or because the wider community is moving in that direction. There are trends that arise always threatening the life of the church. And... We have to, be, as I say again, we have to be careful we're not constantly moving into or being influenced by either by embracing them or reacting to them. The COVID restrictions, with all of that that has happened, there's arisen a huge interest in limitations of authority, personal sovereignty, separation of church and state, Christian nationalism, and so on. Now, some of these things we addressed. We addressed them at a moment at a time, and then move on. As I say, because what you need is Christ, not the cultural issues constantly put before you. Black Lives Matter has also caused another challenge within our society, within our nation. It has caused an arising of empathy, 
towards certain people, as well as a pendulum swing of, of opposition of viewpoint. So on the one hand, it's fanned the flames of kinism, a view of racial separation that advocates maintaining a strict and forced separation along tribal and ethnic lines. Don't ever cross those lines. You're white, don't interact with people of different ethnicity. You see that. It's, it's, it's been fanned. I can see it. It's, it's, in the, it's in the discourse more now as, than it has been maybe in recent years. On the other hand, you have those who are going with the ideology of Black Lives Matter, which in itself espouses racist ideas. I mean, fundamentally, it's, it's, its own views are racist, that which is at the core of the movement. So I'm addressing the, the cult of woke, and I see it as a biblical matter that we have to deal with. But secondly, the relevance of woke ideas, why deal with this particular issue? False ideas need to be dealt with, why this? As I've said already, the Word of God teaches us that the primary way to keep you on track and encourage you, and for you to encourage yourself in the Christian life, is studying Christ, growing in your knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I ask you the question, what did you learn about Jesus or relearn about Jesus in the past week? That's what you, sh you should be able to say something. I learned this or I relearned afresh this about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're doing that week in and week out, you will be preserved. You will be fine. You will grow. Especially if you're doing it in total submission to the Word of God and resignation to His rule over your life. This subject is relevant for me to deal with because it has come into the church. It's infiltrated. I mean, it's infiltrated everything. The community, politics, institutions. But the institution, of course, that is most, of, most concerned to me is the church. And so it warrants addressing it. It warrants giving you warning because you're, you're facing this. If you're in education, you're facing this. And let me say this. I hope this isn't misunderstood. But if I was to spend a year walking around the campus of Bob Jones University, I'd be surprised if I couldn't sniff out this, even on the campus of Bob Jones. It is so pervasive. It is everywhere. No, it may be that that wouldn't be the case, but I, I, would be, I would be surprised if I didn't sniff it out somewhere. So you have to be on your toes constantly. Always comes in, always comes into the universities, doesn't it? And all these ideas, you know, whether it's Marx or whatever, you have someone, the, the genesis of the idea is a philosopher. And then you have his students. And his students develop the genesis of the idea. But where do you find the students of the philosopher? You find them in academia. They're always in academia. They're always in the universities. And they begin to talk about their, 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 the, the philosopher that influenced them. They quote them all the time. But they're, they're in the universities. That's where it comes you go to university, you will see this. It's everywhere. But it's in the church too. And so you have all these books that have come out in the last decade. Jamar Tisby, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Eric Mason's Woke Church, An Urgent Call for Christians in America to Confront Racism and Injustice. Daniel Hill, White Awake, 
An honest look at what it means to be white. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, reconstructing the gospel, finding freedom from slaveholder religion. David Swanson, re-discipling the white church from cheap diversity to true solidarity. And on and on it goes. These are pastors. And some of those titles, you look at them at face value and say, there's no issue with that. I mean, this would be a good thing to look at. But they've been influenced by an ideology that isn't a biblical look at problems or sins within a society. It's adopted a framework of critical theory, as we shall see, is destructive. These books are going beyond the Bible into an ideology that is fundamentally at odds with the Bible. Vody Bottom states in his book, Fault Lines, quote, there are groups and ministries that have embraced critical race theory, that's critical theory applied to racism. There are groups and ministries that have embraced critical race theory, and those are problematic. But there is a larger group that is sympathetic to it because their desire to fight what they see as a problem of racial injustice. In other words, there are people that are kind of entrenched in critical race theory, and then there's this other group of people that are sympathetic and their voice and their addressing of it is, is not without being tainted by it. And those books that I listed would fall under that category. I mean, some, some may be more entrenched in the whole ideology. Others are more, let, let's try to help. And of course, many of these pastors are, are in places like Oregon and Washington and New York. And I mean, they're, 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 it's kind of pressing them from their congregations, and they're responding to it. So relevance. We've established the relevance of looking at this. Secondly, recognition. Recognition. Deal with the cult of woke. What are we saying? Why do I call it the cult of woke? What am I recognizing about the movement, and what do we need all to recognize about it? Well, I say, first of all, the woke movement is a cult, right? We need to establish that. One of the things that became clear to me a few years ago was this fact. This, this movement has all the marks of a cult. Again, Vody Bauckham identifies the same thing in his book, Fault Lines. He says, At the center of the coming evangelical catastrophe is a new religion, or more specifically, a new cult. He goes on to say, This cult could be accurately named the cult of anti-racism. So that's how he calls it. I'm just referring to it as a cult of woke. He calls it the cult of anti-racism because he's narrowly dealing with it in the racial setting. And he lays out the following aspects of the cult of anti-racism, things that he identifies are religious in nature. First of all, he deals with their cosmology, what they believe about the world. That's critical theory that I've already addressed. That's how they see the framework of their world. That's their worldview, as it were. That's their book of Genesis that establishes how to look at everything. They have original sin. Original sin, however, is racism and oppression. They have a law that's anti-racism. They have a gospel, racial reconciliation. They have atonement, that's reparations. New birth, that's wokeness. They have a canon, which is critical social justice scholarship. And they have, of course, their theologians, those that write and address this subject as an area of expertise. Now, it's not easy always to identify a cult. I mean, how, how do, 
when does something move into being cultic? Right? It's not, not easy. But I'm going to suggest three characteristics. And of course, religions have some of these things too, but I, I want you to, to see kind of what's going on. There's, there's aspects of this that are, well, let me just state it. First of all, display unquestioning loyalty to a person, idea, object, movement, or work. Right? Unquestioning loyalty. Person, idea, object, movement, or work. Second, have a system of beliefs. Third, redefine old terminology and invent new terminology. So those are three things that you would find in a cult. And you find this in this whole movement, these things. Do they display unquestioning loyalty? Yes, they do, to their ideology, to their set of beliefs. I mean, I'm not going to spend time detailing this and giving you evidence of it, but you only have to look at the smoldering embers of the cities of America to see what people will put up with to defend their ideology. Their cities are burning around them, and no one says anything, because it's done in the name of the ideology. These people are taking over the city, burning parts of the city, pushing people out of the city, business owners and so on, the oppressors. And no one says anything because it fits with the ideology. That, that is unquestioning loyalty. Do they have a system of beliefs? Yes. Others have noted that to be woke in 2022 has gone beyond how you look at the world to the fact that if you really are woke, you will have established, agreed-upon beliefs. So it's not just that you're aware of things. No, it's not just, I'm woke, I see the issues. You have to agree. You have to agree, for example, that censorship is necessary. You have to have censorship, because someone might say something that you feel attacked by, and you don't like it, so censorship is good. You've, You've seen this. I mean, the world is kind of going mad right now, because Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, and we'll be tied that there's kind of, you know, the First Amendment displayed, you know, the right to, to speak, to... You know, they're scared. They're scared that you can actually attack ideas. And this is the thing. Of course, someone can go beyond. They can incite hatred and all the rest. I, I, get, I get that there's a strange sort of line to free speech. But the answer to it is not to limit it to say that certain things are entirely off-limits just because they make you feel a little uncomfortable. As, as, one, as one man said, in all of human history, the best that we have come to understand with regard to speech is that you get to say your stupid thing, and I get to say my stupid thing, and a bunch of stupid people get to figure out which one they think is right, you know. That's the best we can, that we can come up to in a fallen world. And I think, I think there's truth there. Censorship is necessary. You have to agree with that. Not allowed, you need to have safe spaces, as we'll see in just a moment. Some groups of people have more power than others, right? That, that, that's one of the things you have to agree. Some have more power than others. This is under a terminology called social binary. The oppressors and the oppressed. Thirdly, what groups you belong to is more important than who you are as an individual. You have to believe this. You have to believe that the group you belong to is more important than who you are, your character, and so on. 
Fourthly, lived experience is more important than empirical evidence. What you've experienced, what you've felt, what you feel, you have to believe that's more important than facts and objective data. These these are the things you... Now, woke has gone from just being aware to you need to agree with this. If you don't, you're not part of the movement. So let me elaborate a little more on some of these premises that they have. That society, first of all, is divided into oppressed and oppressor. Right? These are the groups. Right? For every social group, there is an opposite group. Whether it's the group of race or ethnicity, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, religion, nationality. I can't break down how these groups work. As I was look, going through and pre- preparing for this, I thought the easiest way for me is to, I'll list all the oppressed, right? Here's, here's the highest oppressed, and everything else is just being oppressed by anyone in the, that has, that's in these groups, right? So you, you'll follow it, I think, this way. You'll have to put in the alternatives so that you can see who the, the oppressed are. But... You have a number of categories, racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, religious oppression, ableism, nationalism, all right? Racism, white, there's, there's the oppressor, okay? That's the category right there, which means you're brown, black, whatever, then you're, you're being oppressed by them. Classism, you have the owning class, you have the poor, the working class, the middle class. So those who kind of own things. Sexism, cisgendered males, Right? That is, men who are identified as men when they were born still say they're men. They're, they're there, right? Heterosexism. That is, heterosexuals. They're, they're again there in that dominant group. Christianity for religion. It's a dominant group. The able-bodied. They're in that dominant group. Citizens, in contrast to immigrants or whatever. They're in that dominant group. So these are the categories. And they're used to establish whether you are oppressed or an oppressor. Now, of course... You're in different categories, aren't you? You're, you, 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 you know, I, I, I could be, I could be white, but I'm female. I'm not cisgendered male or whatever. So, you look at all these categories, and this this comes in then this whole idea of intersectionality, and now you get to sort of see what groups you're in. Again, it's not about your character. It's not about who you are, how you live. It's about what group you're found in. And so I'm found in this group. And so if you're you're a white male Christian who owns property. I mean, you're just like the oppressor, a tyrant. And, you know, not even in the making. You're really there. Part of the problem. So, you know, that means Christians oppress Muslims. That's, you know, by categorization. Not by whether Christians actually oppress Muslims. Just Christians oppress Muslims because they're the dominant group. No, I'll, I was going to say something else there, but I'll, I'll refrain. So this brings us then to another premise. Oppression occurs through hegemonic power. Now, hegemony is the belief that the dominant group maintains its dominance. It does things to hold on to its power. And it does this by imposing its ideology and its views on everyone else. So instead of let's say, 
oppression being, as it's biblically understood, an act of cruelty or injustice. Oppression is just the well-intentioned norms of a society where the dominant group have control over how you live. Like have a certain control of the structures or the institutions. That's oppression. I have to go quickly here. A third premise is that the lived experience of the oppressed gives them access to truth that the oppressors do not have, right? The lived experience of the oppressed gives them access to truth that the oppressors do not have. You can't walk in my shoes. You don't know. One of the most important textbooks in this whole subject, this whole area, it's a technical textbook used in the universities. It's in its ninth edition written by a woman named Margaret Anderson. It's called Race, Class, and Gender. And she states her purpose in the book. She says this, quote, Objectivity, as found through rational thought, is a Western and masculine concept that we will challenge through this text. Objectivity. Like, this is fact. This is real. One plus one equals two. Whatever. This is... Western and male, and we're going to challenge it. Now, now don't you, you think this is loon? This is this is crazy, but these this, these are well refined ideas, right? These aren't just people who have thrown out nonsense. They have thought about this. They are educated in this. They they are they are they have imbibed it all into their life. This this is the gospel for them, and their whole world gets framed by these premises that we've considered already. They, they have, you have access to truth as an oppressed person that the oppressor doesn't understand. And so that's your experience is objective. Even if I can challenge it by facts and evidence and things that occurred, no. The foundation is lived experience. Privileged groups are blinded by their privilege. Objectivity cannot be trusted. And so the entire movement becomes an attack on logic, reason, coherence, and reality. In fact, if someone perceived to be a part of an oppressed group, listen to this, so, so, so think of someone who's in an oppressed group, right? Let's say, oh, a homosexual, a, a black person, a Muslim, whatever. They're in an oppressed group. If they don't agree with their oppression, it is because they've succumbed to a form of internalized oppression. They don't know that they've been oppressed. See, you're not allowed to disagree. You're not allowed to disagree. Even your fellow experience must be in line with what the group says is going on. Empirical evidence should be questioned on the basis that the very definition of the word evidence cannot be trusted can't trust anything that comes out of a male-dominated field, such as science. I mean, it's, it's gone crazy. There are papers and articles written on the whiteness of mathematics. I mean, you think, what relevance, really, has it got? A fourth premise, then, is social justice. You must give yourself to social justice, which is you live to liberate the oppressed groups. That sounds worthy. 
liberate oppressed groups. And this is the danger of it. Some of what is said has seeds of truth. And that's always the danger, isn't it? It's not the kind of blatant error that everyone can see a mile away. It's when something comes in with a seed of truth and you think, oh, okay, I can see that. The power of the devil to deceive is in believability. Are people oppressed? Yes. Are there power structures in play? Yes. Are there certain types of privileged people that tend to occupy places of power? Yes. Should we oppose societal injustices? Yes. But there are issues in the way they're going about it. Let me give you four issues with this whole thing. Critical theory played out in this whole woke movement. One, where God is acknowledged at all, he tends to be reimagined. Where God is acknowledged at all, he tends to be reimagined. So he accepts the fact that I'm homosexual or whatever. We reimagine God. Two, the primary problem everyone faces is external oppression, not personal sin. That's the number one issue. External oppression, not personal sin. Three, logically deduced from that then, the answer to man's problems is not the cross, but reparations from the oppressor and a readjustment of the hegemonic powers. That's salvation. It doesn't really have a salvation, but that's what it would look like. Fourth, even if one identifies with Christ, that identity plays second fiddle to other identities, such as ethnicity, gender, and so on. Your first black, brown, homosexual, whatever, then your identity to Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, is second to that. So like a cult, the woke are driven by a set of core beliefs and axioms. Their goal, listen, is to tackle the world they believe is fundamentally oppressing them. The entire world is a battleground of hierarchies. Their aim is to destabilize the power structures. How? How do they destabilize? Question and attack everything, even that which is factual and verifiable, and suggest alternatives based on subjective experience. So we don't get to talk about the improvement either. Like if someone's to say, here's a problem with the way some aspect of American life or Western life, here's a problem. Let's discuss it. No, because now you're using reason, and that's a white, male, Western way of dealing with the problem. Let's deal with it based on felt experience. Just, I mean, this is barbaric. This is, this, is, this is like what you see in the wild, which is exactly what's going on. That's why people are living animals. Because you don't, they're being treated like animals. They're being treated. They're being told that to, to actually sit down and talk and have a reasonable discussion about solutions to problems is a, is a white Western male type thing to do. So you can't even come up with a, a rational solution to the problems of our society. Just see how it works itself out. Attack the structures and see how it falls into play. Well, you know how it's going to fall into play. We've... we've History has written this story before. Other tyrants will rise up and exert dominance. Only there won't be the objective, rational structures to keep them from overexerting their power. They will do whatever they like because it feels good to them. 
time is gone. I don't want to push anymore. I will come back to this tonight, God willing. We'll pick up with the redefinition of old terminology and the invention or the use of new terminology, which plays into the whole cultic idea of it. But I want to just leave Scripture with you. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. Paul is being, has been attacked for his, you know, as an apostle's legitimate, the super apostles, so-called, thinking they are superior to him. And how does he deal with it? Chapter 10, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent, I'm bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see how Paul lived? Were there issues in society in his day? Absolutely. <laughs> of that, there's no doubt. But he didn't take a carnal approach. And he also realized that whatever problems are pervasive in Roman culture, or in particular cities where I go and bring the gospel, the number one problem is that men are lost. They're perishing in their sin. They're rebels against the living God. And that, that is where the power lies. The proclamation of Christ crucified. That men can see where true liberty is. So that when he writes to slaves in the letter to the Colossians or to the Ephesians, he doesn't tell them to run from their masters. He doesn't tell them to oppose the power structures. He tells them to live as before God. Serve with a mindset like Christ. God will be with you. God will bless you. There are power structures, there are oppressive experiences that we have all been subject to and are subject to and will be subject to. The liberty that matters is when I know that I can stand before God set free from the number one problem of my life, my sin separate me, separating me from God. And I'm a child of God, whatever the color of my skin, whatever my economic background, whatever has been done to me in the past or what will happen to me in the future. I stand before God, sin's forgiven, and as we read this morning, nothing can change that. Nothing can separate me from that. Are there things that need to be dealt with? Do certain wrong ideas that arise from pagan beliefs and false religions need to be addressed? Do distortions that even were born out of Christian thinking people need to be corrected? Absolutely. 
But the number one message is make sure each man sees himself as standing, standing naked, alone, before God. And his number one need is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We do that for ourselves. We do that in the message we preach. That's what changes societies. That is God's path of dealing with falsehoods and power structures and inequalities in our world. May God bless his word. Let's bow together in prayer. Every day, every week that you leave this church and you go into the world, as I said last week, you're, you're confronted with all sorts of people in their pulpits teaching you, vying for your attention, wanting your loyalty. And you don't know at all times the undergirding ideologies that drive them to make the statements they make. Be very careful. Be very careful about the false imaginations that can seep into your soul and rob you of your joy in Christ. Gracious God, we pray, give us discernment, wisdom, and a loyalty to thy word. No matter what we are confronted with, may we test it with the Scriptures. May it please Thee, O God, even for those that have fallen foul to the deception of the enemy. God, recover your church. Pull her out of her errors and her sins. Have mercy. Have mercy on your people. Give understanding where there are sheep that are sitting under false teaching. Give them discernment. Pull them out of places of danger and give them a place to worship where Christ is set forth and the truth is central. So hear our prayers. We thank Thee for being with us today. Give us a blessed afternoon of the company of one another and Thy presence in our homes. Bring us back here again tonight to worship, to enjoy the praise of the triune God and the fellowship together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever.